If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. <laughs> And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Some ancient people believed they were made of butter. Others survived the French terror, but were convinced that they'd been guillotined and given the wrong head back. Throughout history, People have suffered from delusions. Rhiannon Davis spoke to Victoria Shepherd, the author of a new book, The History of Delusions, to find out more. So for my first question, how would you define a delusion? Yes, definitions are very important in what what is a a fairly unwieldy subject. So I take a very clear definition, uh, which is broadly accepted, a sort of standard definition of a delusion, which is a fixed false idea about yourself or about the world, which can't be shaken despite plenty of evidence to the contrary. So that's the, that's, the, that's the working definition that I've used in the book. And how far back can we trace delusions through history? Well, the great sort of collection compendium of delusions that, that exists for us um, is a book called The Anatomy of Melancholy by a, an Oxford scholar, 16th century scholar called Robert Burton, which was published in 1621. And it's a compendium of melancholia, a concept loosely akin to what we think of now as depression. And delusions were seen as a symptom of melancholia. And so they crop up in the anatomy of melancholy. And Burton raided the libraries of Europe to find cases of of melancholy. And within that, cases of delusion. And his his book is is crammed full of them. And his stories go all the way back to... um, to classical civilization. So with the very first cases we have, somebody who thinks that they're a potsherd, somebody who thinks that they are, uh, which is akin to, to people who think later that they're made of glass, somebody who thinks that they'll melt because they're made of butter. There's all these uh, stories from antiquity that make it into his book. At the time, melancholia as a, as a sort of phenomenon was was believed to come from an imbalance of humours. And 
particularly too much black bile so it's it's yellow but different different humors of the body and if you had too much black bile in relation to the other other humors then you were seen to be uh, susceptible to delusional thinking so that's the kind of diagnostic framework if you like that he's placing these cases of delusion inside obviously by the time he's writing the book, he's, he's, he's including classical examples, but by the time he's writing the book, delusions were really um, ju- almost exclusively seen as evidence of possession by the devil, demonic possession, and that lasted for centuries. So his book has contemporary cases. Um, glass delusion was, was all the rage when he was writing the book in the, in the late 16th century and early, early 17th century. And so he really, he really collects them together. But delusions essentially are as, are as old as they've been people. I mean, people having a fixed false belief about themselves or about the world, which can't be shaken. Delusions go back um, as far as, as, as people do. The case I make in the book is that um, they are rather ingenious, imaginative, sort of psychological uh, self-protection strategies, often, um, and and so you know, in that sense, they function. You can see how they function, and that's it stayed fairly consistent over time. And and the principal types of delusion um, have also remained fairly consistent. And I want to talk more about the glass delusion later on. But first of all, I had another question on Burton. And you mentioned that he himself suffered from bouts of melancholy. Was this particularly unusual for someone who is trying to understand, to treat delusion, to suffer from it in some way themselves? Well, he's a very, very interesting person. Obviously, he's the great collector of the subject. So he's he, every, all roads lead back to Robert Burton, if you're looking at, at the history of delusions. But yes, I mean, he's also a complicated figure. My theory is that he was experiencing uh, a delusion of of his own that uh, in relation to his horoscope and to astrology that he had, uh, so a horoscope that he'd drawn up for himself and a visit to an astrologer when he was a young man plagued with melancholia in London. Well, he was a student in Oxford and he, he there's evidence that he visited a uh, an astrologer called Simon Foreman, who was a kind of celebrity astrologer, and consulted this astrologer and was told that he would die suddenly. It's, it's in an extraordinary notebook, which is held in the Ashmole Collection at the Bodleian. So very early on in his life, he's given this kind of, um, this note of doom, as well as prescription for purges and so on and so forth. So he was obviously suffering melancholy. I, 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 I am, I'm pretty certain that he was played with depression all his life what we now think of as depression all his life he consulted this this astrologer he then drew up uh, his own horoscope this the horoscope that he drew up was is in the marginalia of of one of his books which is again in the Bodleian um, and it gives the the minute of his birth and of his conception so his parents had I'm presuming it's his parents who told him when he was conceived too so they probably dabbled in in horoscopes and it, what it sent me to in the book was was exploring this fascinating um, kind of duality that went on in the minds of people in this era, because I was I was asking the question: Well, would would this scholar who in the Anatomy of Melancholy he he mocks people who believe in 
superstitious things like the stars and and the, and the idea that the stars could preordain your future um and that's mocked in king lear as well shakespeare's lampooning the idea of astrology on, on the london stage and it's seen as publicly anyway is really old-fashioned and a bit and a bit kind of intellectually weak but privately almanacs which were the kind of horoscopes predictive uh, texts that would come out annually were incredibly popular so people were still enjoying it secretly and Burton quite clearly was doing his own horoscope and was kind of was hooked on horoscopes privately whilst at the same time believing that they were superstitious he also writes in the anatomy of melancholy about he warns against believing you know looking into the future and believing your horoscope and he talks about people who believe that they're going to die and then kind of do die you know how the idea that you could the danger that you can make something come true simply by believing it and he's scathing about that and yet the memorial that's left in, in Christchurch Cathedral that he commissioned from his brother, the plaque reads, under his bust, here lies Robert Burton, or he, under his pseudonym, to whom melancholy gave both life and death. And his and his horoscope is, is there. He commissioned it to sit underneath his epitaph. So there's quite a lot of hard evidence that he he was under the sway of this belief in the stars and their predictive qualities, whilst at the same time, not believing it. Of course, astronomy is um, is a, cu- a cutting edge science at the time. But I found out, which I found very fascinating, that uh, most scholars wouldn't necessarily have called uh, astrology a delusion at the time, because it was so closely allied with the cutting edge science of astronomy, the new telescopes and the lenses that were showing the technology that was showing that the planet that the planetary uh, formations could move and so on and so forth. And believing in that required quite a lot of magical thinking in itself. And so it wasn't too much of a stretch to, to have a bit of magical thinking in terms of your horoscopes. And they weren't separated um, in a way that we might do now between science and superstition. Mm. So as you've said then, Burton does live through this period of immense change with this revolution in astronomy. And that's something that seems to run throughout the book with all of the case studies you mentioned. They all live in these very tumultuous periods. Can we draw then a straight line between living through historical trauma, historical change and the onset of delusion? What I certainly did find was that looking very closely so my sort of project as a social historian here was to look behind the case studies that which are presented you know classically as kind of marvels of the mind curios very strange stories and see if I could find traces of, of real lives and real struggles and what I what I did find once I really started to listen to these stories of these 10 individuals that from the past separated by centuries and, and by countries often was that their delusions did function in very similar ways and you could start to see I broke it down again it's crude they overlap and minds aren't completely neat of course but I saw how what delusions might offer people given that you know if you go against common sense wisdom of the people around you you risk ridicule you risk everything social standing so you know the question I asked myself was what well what do they offer people what do they offer that's worth the courts of Europe laughing at you or losing your job. <laughs> it must be something pretty special to cling on to, to, to the alternative reality that, you, that you've created for yourself. And time and again, you'd see a reversal of fortune, a great um, humiliation triggering a delusion, a great trauma. So, you know, the, the wars 
whether it's the French Revolution, so I have in my book um, the documented cases of, of people who survived the terror of the French Revolution but believed uh, believed that their heads had been cut off by the guillotine anyway, and they, they turned up in their tens, and these are the ones that were documented, saying, there's been a mix-up, my, my head was cut off uh, by the guillotine, also I've got the wrong head, I was given the wrong head, it was a mix-up in the basket. So that clearly, you know, the technology of the guillotine and the trauma of watching the, the mass executions that happened during the terror had triggered this. And you can you can trace war trauma, both of the doctors and of the people experiencing the delusions. And, you know, time and again, the, my first chapter is about a woman in France in the 1920s who turned up at a police station saying that she believed her husband had been murdered and substituted for a double. And it turned out she she'd... Uh, this, this delusion had begun during the First World War. She'd seen crate loads of, of uniforms arriving from the front, all this kind of mass industrialised death happening on the front, not far from Paris. She'd also lost her own children in infancy, several of them in quick succession. And you can again start to see how that delusion is helping. It's easier, perhaps, you could argue, and I do in the book, that it's, it's perhaps easier to live with the the idea of substitution and abduction and a doppelganger or a double than it is arbitrary and kind of traumatic loss and death and yeah so yes you do see these echoes so delusions across time and across place often seem to function as a, as a defense or as a way of living with a, a kind of wretched existence or a, a, a great trauma sometimes it's turning it it's very much of the body, so saying, well, I've had my head uh, replaced or I've turned into glass. Sometimes it's much less obvious, you know, it's it's a plot, it's it's, it's abduction and, um, and substitution. But you can see how trauma and, and what the mind does to, to assimilate that across history. It's a very interesting thing to put a kind of his, historian's lens on a psychological phenomenon and, and to see these patterns. And they really are remarkably consistent. In thinking about imagination, something I was really intrigued by was in the treatment of delusions when physicians would practice a pious fraud, a little lie for the power of the greater good. Can you explain what that was? Yes. Yeah, so this is where... So sometimes think the, the cases feel incredibly contemporary. Sometimes when you hear this idea of the ruse, which is how it was referred to, and like, ruses crop up in, you've guessed it, Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy all the time. Uh, and suddenly you feel the distance of the years because nobody would dream with a safeguarding world. Nobody would dream of talking about a ruse now to try and snap somebody out of a delusion. The, the, I have a case in my book of Madame X. This is a kind of pseudonym from the French psychiatrists who were uh, categorising delusions in, in the 19th century who believed that she'd already died. And the kind of living dead delusion that, you, that you're, you're dead, you kind of negated yourself goes back a long way and there are extraordinary cases in the anatomy of melancholy of ruses used to snap people out of this belief that they'd already died and they involve these kind of very macabre they're more like sort of Edgar Allan Poe short stories these scenarios where the physician gets a stooge and uh, the person who says they've already died with the delusion that, that of negation that they've already died is lying in the bed saying that they've already died and the, and the stooge is put in one case in a coffin next to the person with the delusion and then the stooge is then asked to sit up and eat and the physician says you know well 
if he can eat, why can't you? Now, often in the sto- in the recounting of these ruses, they all, almost always recalled as if they had miraculous transform- transformative powers, and they worked. And the person said, "Yeah, fair enough. You know, if he's eaten, I can't be dead." And they, they were they were fine. I take that with a pinch of salt. I think there's probably some propaganda from the physicians slash quacks going on there, but certainly. What was interesting, actually, was this idea that you might trick somebody by using stooges, by kind of entering partly into the delusion, essentially. You're treating it like a game. Uh, you, you join them in their delusion that they're Napoleon to an extent, and then you sort of guide them out of it. I mean, it was actually, the, the ruse goes on longer than I would have imagined. There's a famous case from the 1960s in America of several men in in Baltimore who believed that they were Christ. It was written up as a book called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. And the the, the, uh, psychiatrist's idea was to put them all in a room together, let them fight it out, which which they literally did. It came to blows. But that particular psychiatrist realised how unethical it was. That was the kind of end of the idea that a ruse could in any way be ethical. And now we wouldn't dream of, of using that kind of um, methodology. <laughs> but it lasted a long time. It came well into the 20th century. It's something people were trying as a way of reaching people who, who have sort of set up camp, as it were, who are living in these alternative realities. And that question of how you might contact them, coax them back into the more, the generally accepted reality is, a, is an open question, you know, and one that I explore in the book. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The echoes work for themselves, don't they, about the dangers of oversimplification that a a delusion can do. And perhaps, you know, but it does show how hard most of us find it to live with ambiguity. And I think that's worth thinking about. Human beings will almost do anything rather than hold on to conflict in their minds and conflicting ideas. And the temptation to to create a simple narrative a conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. And how did the public react to people with delusions? I think the answer to that is very complex because obviously only the people who had very extreme delusions made it um, to any kind of um, assessment and into the records. Humoral imbalance was, was how it was interpreted. 
then demonic possession. So for, for centuries, you were considered uh, to be possessed by the devil if you were in the throes of a delusion. And so historically, very much othered and put into institutions as they as they sprung up. I mean, the, the story of delusions and many of the of the characters, the protagonists in my book who've experienced delusions are French, and there's a reason for that. There's a, in some sense, it's a very French story. Delusions really only began to be categorised. Any kind of taxonomy of delusions really only started from a psychological point of view, beyond just saying that you you were possessed by the devil or you had a humoral imbalance, began in in France um, just after the revolution when several big pioneering new asylums sprung up with physicians who were, for the first time, speaking to people who turned up with delusional thinking, interviewing them. And, and over sometimes several decades, these ex- became my kind of primary source material, taking detailed notes of their background, trying to understand, see if they could understand where this where this this fixed false belief had come from. And that was really new. And, and it was only really happening in France. And so we have these extraordinary case studies with often women but given names like madame m who who was the woman who believed her husband had been murdered and substituted for a double or madame x who believed she'd already died and they're given these kind of intriguing pseudonyms they become poster girls for you know illusion of the delusion of doubles or for the delusion of negation it's ironic because at the same time as they were for the first time interviewing them in detail they also disappear because to some extent on a personal level because they are part of these of these case studies, which were then passed around the you know physician circles, and they become labels for the kind of type of delusion. And part of what I've tried to do is go back into these well-intentioned and extraordinary interviews and see what new questions we might ask from this point in history, or look at the answers that he got and see what how we now read it. Um, with more of a psychological, psychodynamic lens, they were just beginning to think in those terms and to think about what the psychological reasons might be. And are there any pitfalls with us in the 21st century looking back and trying to prescribe our ideas of disorders or mental health problems onto problems that people were experiencing centuries ago? There certainly are, and there's... You know, I'm very aware that this is one lens. I think it's a very valuable lens because it's an underexplored area and and the source material really hasn't been gone over again for a long time. We now know, of course, that neurology, you know, and and scanning techniques can show us all sorts of things about what what is going on in the brain with with certain delusions and probably was going on uh, with some of these people. What the balance will turn out to be between organic brain disease or neurological dysfunction. It's often in the front right, which is where sense of self and sense of other is placed. You know, what the balance is with these people from the past, we can't possibly know. But I think as long as you know that you're filling in a part of the equation, but that you that they will they will remain essentially mysterious. And you have to you have to live with the fact that um, 
it's an incomplete picture, but taking taking a psychodynamic lens onto these stories, listening to them, seeing how much we can understand them is useful. And I mean, you know, the, it, the pendulum has swung very far over re- recent decades towards looking at uh, delusions and other, other mental um, health stories from a neurological and br- organic brain side. And I think... I think it's useful to look as well at, at what the psychological, uh, what, what what the delusions are trying to tell us. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I came to, to hear them as kind of communiques from the past, really. They often encoded. They're strange and sometimes they're absolutely wild, but they, they have kind of encoded meaning. They, they demand an audience. They demand interpretation. And almost always you can you can hear these these intimations of anxiety or how people are dealing with a wretched existence or a reversal of fortune or conflicting that's another one a conflicted feelings seem to be very very hard and seems to be timeless across history very very hard to accommodate conflicted feelings and a delusion can be very helpful in the short term i mean James Tilly Matthews, I should probably bring up, who's a tea merchant in the late 18th century, who was an autodidact, fell in uh, with some public figures, uh, including Priestley and some incredible people, David Williams, who were running public lectures. Anyway, they were trying to see if they could get involved in what looked like it was going to be revolution in France. Turned out that it was revolution in France. And they put together a deputation to go to, to France to try to diplomatically stop this revolution from happening and James Tilly Matthews this tea broker manages to get on the boat and go join them and he becomes a kind of self-styled diplomat and it must have been very exciting for him until it all goes horribly wrong the, the revolution happens the terror happens he's put in prison every you know the English think he's a spy the French think he's a spy it's um, extraordinary that he didn't lose his head under the guillotine but he didn't he's unceremoniously kicked out of France and has to, lives in great in poverty with his wife and child in Camberwell and a week later we find him in the House of Parliament shouting from the gallery down at Lord Liverpool's government that there's a conspiracy that the Jacobins are trying to bring revolution to London and the way that they're doing it this is the extraordinary centrepiece of his delusion the way that they're doing it is through what he calls the heirloom, which is a kind of Heath Robinson type contraption, which is using uh, magnetic rays and all kinds of new physical forces were being discovered um, at that time. Um, so it's not surprising. He he'd probably met Mesmer in Paris a few years earlier. And these ideas about, you know, invisible forces were, were very live and, uh, Anyway, this this heirloom he said was was being operated by this kind of proto um, Dickensian gang of crooks, pockfretten criminals who were operating these heirlooms on street corners in Westminster, and they were influencing the minds of the politicians to turn them towards revolution and bring revolution to England. And it's the most kind of technicolor daring do extraordinary delusion he also was also an amazing draftsman so he he drew them he drew the, the gang and the and the, the, they're all all of the illustrations are in the welcome collection they're worth a look they're extraordinary and so he's left for us this this Im, these images that he that he's drawn of the gang and the heirloom and it seems completely he's put into into bedlam and uh, that the uh 
John Haslam, who's running the care and inverted commas at, at Bedlam at the time. So it wasn't the same in England as it was in Paris. It was, it was way behind. Haslam loathed him uh, for, for many different reasons and wrote a book to kind of prove that he was mad and they were right to keep him in there. Family wanted him out and said he was completely sane even though he never let go of this paranoid conspiracy theory. But he wrote this book called The Illustrations of Madness, supposedly in James Tilly Matthews' own words. And so we have this, this extraordinary detailed case study of, 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 um, of James Tilly Matthews. And whilst it seems completely out there, if you, if you think about the kind of um, fine edge between life and death that he'd been walking, not to mention the kind of humiliation, which often seems to trigger delusions and the fall from grace and the... But the sort of you you could die if you were on the wrong side one minute, you could be on the right side the next. You know, he the political turmoil and the danger that he'd lived through. Having a very clear plot makes a lot of sense. And that's what delusions seem often to do throughout history. They organize your enemy. They make nebulous ambiv you know threat, invisible threat, and I couldn't be more pertinent than it is now today, looking looking at the days we know we all know about, you know. Uh, things in the ether that might be influencing us is it couldn't be more topical really could it and and, and if, in a world of ambivalence and ambiguity and danger and trauma the idea of a very simple plot that needs to be foiled good and bad and and you know he's on the side of justice and so on starts to make a lot of sense of course it may be a very helpful strategy psychologically in the short term but you know the echoes work for themselves don't they about the dangers of oversimplification that a, that a delusion can do and perhaps you know but it does show how hard most of us find it to live with ambiguity and I think that's worth thinking about human beings will almost do anything rather than hold on to conflict in their minds and conflicting ideas and the temptation to create to create a simple narrative a conspiracy as it's true of Madame M with, with her delusion of doubles and the substitutions, you know, hundreds of years later, 120 years later, it's the same thing. You know, ambiguity, it seems to be the hardest thing to live with. But of course, oversimplification has its own dangers. And I'd like to finish the conversation by asking about one of the most famous characters in your book, which is the French king who suffers from the glass delusion. Yes. Can you tell us about Charles and how he comes to have this way of thinking? Yeah, with pleasure. I mean, Charles was my way in. He was my, my entry delusion. <laughs> um, I was researching something completely different and I came across this mention of, uh, in a book that I was reading for other purposes and it jumped out this story about a French king and you know it, it's a kind of absurd uh, scenario because here's this here's this king who's dealing with the hundred years war with England so he's got a pretty full-on day job but privately he's panicking about about smashing if he hits uh, if he hits a hard surface so the more you look at it the more you think well hang on a minute he's risking he's risking and he got you know the ridicule of the European court what on earth is worth risking this? What is what is what is glass offering? The belief that he's turned into glass. Can, is there a psychological explanation for it? And then, of course, you look at glass as a property again, like like magnetic rays for James Tilly Matthews. Glass was a, a, a very new technology uh, at the time. Charles may have seen some glass in Chartres Cathedral or his father's kind of goblets, hefty goblets. But the technology which pl created plate glass, which allowed the glass to be strong but also clear 
uh, has the kind of distinctive bullseye in the middle of it. You might, if you think about what plate glass looks like, and it was it was making its way into domestic spaces for the first time. And it had a kind of alchemical magic to it because people, if you stop and think about this, glass isn't new, but the idea that you're heating rock to temperatures where it becomes a liquid and then it becomes transparent. I mean, it's it's magical. It's alchemical. And, and you know, even now when, when glass isn't um, new anymore, it still has this unique, it seems to me, material quality, which it can kind of accommodate conflicting ideas. It can embody conflicting ideas it's fragile but it's brittle it's a treasure but also it's breakable so it it does a lot of work as a kind of metaphor and cases of glass delusion I found as as I kind of became a detective of delusions crop up again and again and again and again so Dr Clausen I found um via a a, a psychiatrist in, in the Netherlands found Dr Clausen's uh, lectures in the 19th century with women who'd thought that their legs and arms had turned into glass of course they'd already been admitted to asylums but then when they were interviewed there are these little footnotes and it, it carries on and on it's never really gone away even though the technology is is no longer new because its power as a metaphor uh, is it's still compelling it's still strange and the kind of the fairy tale aspect to it the glass slipper it's a very charged material the female male aspect is interesting too because glass delusion was part of a subset of melancholy called scholars' melancholy, which was very much connected to to men, uh, scholars. And it was a kind of rarefied, the image of, of scholars' melancholy is a kind of, it's depression, but it's rather delicious version of depression where you're lying by a babbling brook, staring into a middle distance stare. And, you know, you can, you can picture a kind of very high-minded. It's associated with, with yes, intellectual high-minded kind of wistfulness, and to do with men because it was it was to do with the realm of scholars but when you look at other um histories so you know women and in women in female asylums it's there you know women were i'm I'm sure that there were women with glass delusion they just weren't one of the you know quote-unquote glass men uh, who were part of scholars uh, melancholy and i mean you know there was a, it was so common, both in fiction and in terms of people talking about it, in, in real experiences of glass delusion, that there was a, a discrete um, title. There, there was a category of people that were known as glass men. It even turns up in a Cervantes short story called The Glass Graduate. So there was a kind of quote-unquote epidemic of this idea that people had turned into glass. And it, it obviously, and for very logical reasons, was, was most... Um, uh, you know, abundant. <laughs> the cases peaked um, when glass was this this new material, but it's never gone away. And I found traces, and they're in the book of people who've had moments of thinking that they're made of glass. And I found them predating as well, as, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, pre glass. But uh, in in uh, Robert Burton, there's a case of a person who thought they were made of 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 pot of pottery and whilst it doesn't have the kind of same magic it's the same idea and quite clearly seems to me both cases from hundreds and hundreds of years ago and cases that are more contemporary you know it does it's a distance regulator isn't it being made of glass when you ask what it's doing for the person who who believes it because at first glance you think at first thought you think well that's a absurd and b kind of frightening to think you're going to smash but you know 
it, there's a use for it too, isn't there? As a distance regulator, way of saying, stay away from me. I'm, I'm breakable. I'll don't, you know, don't get too close. And in a world now, we're looking back at history of overpopulation and um, kind of issues of personal space are really potent. And a glass delusion as a kind of expression of social anxiety, I think stands up. That's how I've come to see it. And it certainly fits with the, as I say, the traces. What I've been trying to do is get as forensically close as I can to the real lives of these people behind the stories that they tell us. Because I believe that that's, I think that delusions past and present demand an audience, demand an interpretation. And they they demand that you sit, you kind of pull up a metaphorical chair and listen to these communiques that, that they're imparting. And you hear, you hear that in Glass Delusion. You hear it. That was Victoria Shepherd. Her book, A History of Delusions, the Glass King, A Substitute Husband and A Walking Corpse is out now, published by One World. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.